Let us pray. Gracious God, be with us now as we gather in this place. Silence in us any voice but your own. And speak your word for Christ's sake. Amen. Our epistle lesson for the day comes from 2 Timothy, verses 6 through 8 and 16 through 18 of chapter 4. Let us hear God's word. As for me, I am already being poured out as a libation, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. From now on there is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Olive Brown Hoffman, a longtime Third Church member, died this past August. Though her given name was Olive, few called her that. She was known as Brownie, Brownie Hoffman. She was a remarkable woman, a nutritionist, a spouse, a mother, a Third Church elder. In her retirement, she became a mean cribbage player. In fact, if you ask Van Van Zanten, he can tell you how she would beat him more than just a little as they kept score of their matches. As I said, Brownie died in August. And when she died, she died, as her children said, with all her marbles. We all should be so fortunate especially if we die with all our marbles at the age of 105. 105. Browning was one of our four Third Church centenarians, now three. Her longevity and theirs has given me much to think about these days. I did the quick math, and within just a month or two, Brownie died at an age that's just almost twice my own age, what I am right now. And comments about me having all my marbles aside, I've been thinking about her life. <laughs> her life and my life, the lives of all of us here, those older than us, those younger than us, including our young people that sang this morning and our Sunday school children. What do they and what do we do with these years that we are given? What are their dreams and visions? What are ours? 
Well, the Old Testament book of the prophet Joel, from which Mary has just read, is unique in the Old Testament. We just get a little snippet of it every three years in the lectionary cycle. Then we also hear reference to it every Pentecost Sunday. When Peter makes reference to this passage from Joel as he seeks to explain what on earth is happening at Pentecost, the tongues of fire descending and people speaking and understanding different languages, the Holy Spirit empowering the earliest church. Joel is unique in that its three brief chapters kind of float in the Bible historically. Scholars can't pinpoint a date. Maybe it was 600 years before Jesus, maybe 800 years, maybe 900 years. It's a challenge for the scholars. It's an opportunity for us because while the historical context is imprecise, the circumstance is very clear and it's very powerful. Joel exercises his vocation as prophet as a kind of visionary mouthpiece for God in the face of a serious plague of locusts and a resulting drought. Think about what that looks like. Crops are gone, famine is upon the people. It's a sobering scene. And Joel, the prophet, calls the people to a season of repentance because it's his belief that the plague and the drought and the famine have resulted from God's judgment on the people, which is hard news for us to hear must have been that much more difficult to live with in the face of starvation and agricultural and ecological despair. But all is not lost. Joel calls the people to repentance because Joel believes that God's ultimate agenda is not plague and famine and drought, but blessing and abundance. Whatever the people did to receive God's judgment is not permanent, nor is judgment God's final posture. If the people return to God, God will be gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. Now, in 2016, we may want to debate long and hard about this understanding of God as a punishing judge who brings suffering upon the people because of their behavior. It's a good conversation to have. But there are other moves to notice in this text as well. Notice that Joel describes a world in some ways very parallel to ours, a combination of ecological and economic crisis. If you watch a weather report on CNN at any point, they will show you where drought is happening in this nation and around the world. And what we call food insecurity, deep hunger is prevalent in our city and beyond our city. Water is scarce. The environment suffers. Which makes this today not a conversation about climate change per se, nor a a conversation about real hunger, though we think about that with Christmas baskets and the grocery run 
people's access to adequate water and food. But those realities are with us always. What grabbed my attention from Joel this morning is not so much that setup or even the dreadful circumstance that the people are facing, but the response. Or the responses, actually, the coupling of responses. Our response and then God's response. Joel calls the people to repent. And when the people do that, with worship that is authentic and heartfelt, then God will respond. The earth itself will rejoice, plants will grow, animals will prosper, rains will come, and food will be plentiful, and stomachs will be full, and the people will be happy, and God will be praised. That's the vision making a clear connection between the ethical and moral life of the people and God's response to us, God's gift of full and abundant life. That's the setup. Here's the vision. Then afterward, God says through the mouth of the prophet Joel, then afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old ones shall dream dreams, and your young ones shall see visions. I can't help but think of Brownie Hoffman when I hear those words. Our old ones dreaming dreams. I wonder what were her dreams in her teens and twenties, in her middle years, in her later years. As she approached a century and beyond, what were her dreams and visions? What are the dreams and visions of the youngest ones among us? What are your dreams and visions, whatever age you may be? It's not a question asked lightly. If we learn anything from this God who we worship and seek to follow, this God with whom we wrestle with on things like judgment and repentance, we know that we are always called by this God to move forward. I am doing a new thing. The status quo is rarely acceptable. We know that. What is remarkable is not that God judges us, because if we look around, there's plenty in this world that would merit God's judgment. What is remarkable is that God not only gives us the capacity to dream and vision, but encourages us, empowers us, gives us the gifts to dream and envision, not to accept what is, but to imagine what may be. And that good news is true in the dawn of our lives, in their sunset, in every moment in between for all of us. It was true for Brownie Hoffman. It is true for every baby baptized in that font. And it's true for all of us in between. The need is great for us to dream and envision the world is hungry for our dreams. And I would imagine God's disappointment lies not in our lack of capacity, 
but in our lack of willingness to push that capacity to its fullest. Make no small plans. The architect and urban developer Daniel Burnham said a century ago, make no small plans. And that's what God is saying to us, so much so that God's spirit is poured out on us so that we can dream big. I think about my own dreams, or the dreams of my children, or the dreams we dream on their behalf. I think about not only my dreams, but what I will do with them, how I will live them out, how I live what the poet Mary Oliver calls my one wild and precious life. And this is about all that, about how we live our dreams. But it's about so much more than that. I think about the dreams of those living in poverty and what an alternate reality for them would look like. Or those living with gun violence every day and their simple dreams of safety and security, of being able to walk to the corner, send their kids to a playground and know they'll come back. I think about what God's dreams for us would look like and the moral and ethical will we must muster to live into those dreams. This summer we spent a week in Washington, D.C. We are a get up very early and sightsee till you drop kind of family. And that week was no different made all the more enjoyable by temperatures near 100 and humidity near 1,000, I think. <laughs> so it was late at night, later in the week, that we walked again around the mall. First, to see the impressive and moving FDR monument. And if you've not seen it, you should and then to move to the Martin Luther King Jr. Monument. You might remember its controversy about the artist, about what she produced, about the use of quotations that help enlighten King's life and work. So we entered through a kind of a stone passageway and encountered the monument itself. It was about 10 o'clock in the evening and still there were dozens and dozens of people there, mostly African-Americans. The monument itself is a sculpture of King, kind of embedded in a huge stone, almost as if he is emerging from a mountain. And I hovered at the periphery of that great crowd, watching generations, primarily generations of African-American families, grandparents and grandchildren, parents and children, Teenagers on their phones paying modest attention to what was going on. Babies and strollers oblivious to it all. We white ministers tend to be king experts one Sunday a year on his birthday. And we often quote his I have a dream speech, though I try at least to quote other things when I get around to that Sunday in January. But in that context, in that moment, in that oppressive heat and humidity as, 
as Black Lives Matter protests were happening just down the street on the Capitol steps at that fascinating and convicting confluence of FDR and Lincoln and a new African-American Smithsonian building and the White House, the words of I have a dream became more than a cliche. More than words I already fear are being lost to our dim and dull memories. They became a contemporary interpretation of those prophetic words now nearly three millennia old. They became not just wishful thinking or an oratorical masterpiece, but a strategic plan, equality, racial justice, freedom. I have a dream, King said, and those words are carved into that stone monument. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Our children have lived that dream. So it becomes our marching orders to dream that dream for all children on behalf of all parents. And if that dream needs to become true for children of African and Latin descent, it must be as true for every daughter as well as every son, for every child born into a poor zip code as well as every child born into an affluent one. Now I know it's okay. We can dream little things. For a long time, I've dreamt about a Chicago-Cleveland World Series. <laughs> I'm torn, but I'm happier than I am torn, and it's okay. But the deeper calling is to a bigger dream. And the deeper calling is to dream for others, those who have yet to discover their God-given capacity to dream because the world won't let them. And the deeper calling is to make it so they can. Because God gives us that gift to dream, to envision, to imagine how things may be rather than accepting how things are. That's what Joel tells us. And every prophet sense that our best dreams are the dreams that align with God's dreams. Our best dreams are the ones that align with God's dreams. And we don't have to guess what that looks like. You shall eat in plenty, and you shall be satisfied. That's the dream. Satisfaction that fills our stomachs and satisfaction that fills our souls. And not just yours and not just mine, but all of God's children, our old ones and our young ones and everyone in between. Amen.